0: And currently, we're working our way verse by verse through the first book of the Bible, Genesis. All right, folks, for today's study, we're going to begin here in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1 says this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. We've looked at this already a little bit so far. But before we completely move on from this material, I want to cover it some more today. Looking at something a little more closely here. When I read that to you, I'm reading to you, obviously, in English. You're listening to me in English. I'm reading this in English. My Bible in front of me is English words. But we need to keep in mind, though, that this is an English translation, that there's another language, another layer behind it. The Old Testament, predominantly that language that's behind our English translations is Hebrew. And so when you look at the Hebrew, when you read the Hebrew of Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, something jumps out at you, or at least it jumped out at me as I was preparing for this study. And that is in this area. that There's actually something that's behind the English that's untranslated. And people debate whether or not it's something significant. I want to look at that today. When you look at it in English, it says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. When you read it in Hebrew, it says, Bereshit bara Elohim et So, those words in Hebrew, they have English translations, but there's this strange word that comes after the Elohim. Bereshit bara Elohim. Bereshit bara Elohim is in the beginning God. And then the word that's translated into English for created is Hamayim. But in between Elohim and Hamayim, in between the word God and the word created, is this et. It's an aleph tav. Aleph-Tav is a combination of two letters in the Hebrew alphabet. The Aleph happens to be the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And the Tav happens to be the last letter of the alphabet. So it's the beginning and the end of the Hebrew alphabet. It's the first and last letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Aleph-Tav, but it's not translated. There's no translation into English. Now, when you translate one language into another, sometimes the word count doesn't exactly match up. Sometimes you start with a certain number of words, and to make that translation into another language, you may end up with more or less words. But that's not the case here. It's not that this is a word that is required there in the Hebrew, but in the English it's conveyed with fewer words, and therefore we don't have to translate this word into anything. No, it's, it's actually not even a Hebrew word. Aleph Tav is not a Hebrew word. It's not a word that's forsaken in the sense that it's not translated in English and it just gets overlooked. No, it's not even a word. All Tav is a combination of two letters, not even a word. It'd be like us saying A and Z, putting A and Z together. In the English language, A is the first letter of the alphabet. Z is the last letter of the alphabet. It's the beginning. It's the end. You put them together, and you have what? As? There's no common English word that corresponds with as. So to put those together and to stick them in the middle of a sentence would not make much sense If you were to run across it in English, if I'm to read in English some book or out of the Bible in my English translation, I run across a combination of A and Z, I'm going to probably think it's a typo. I'm probably going to think there's a mistake there. I remember one time my wife and I were reading a book together and we ran across four letters and it was M-N-O-O, M-N-O-O. That was the combination of the letters and that was the order that they appeared in. One of us chose the position, oh, that must be a typo, and the other one of us chose the position, no, that's probably a real word. We just don't know what it is. Turns out it was a typo. When you read it in the context, it was clear. It was supposed to be the word moon, M-O-O-N, but somebody had transposed some letters, and there it was in print, M-N-O-O. We would read that, and we'd go, oh, that's a typo. We'd see that, and the context helps us to explain that away. Somebody made a mistake. Somebody goofed. That was a typo. I am not likely to come across anywhere else in any reading materials where i'm going to see that same typo again i'm probably never going to in all the reading i might do i'm probably never going to run across another m-n-o-o it's just not going to happen right i mean because a typo of that sort is going to stand out to me as it does now and that was many years ago so i suppose we could be tempted to think if we're reading through this that if we run across that olive tab oh well maybe it's a typo maybe somebody made a mistake somebody slipped a little olive tav in there but the problem is, unlike the situation that I described with the MNOO, that I've never seen again, that's not the case here with the Olive Tav. The Olive Tav actually appears in more places than just we have here in this verse. In fact, it's not that it happens once and then another time somewhere else. It's not that even two times, or three, or four, or five, or ten, or twenty, or fifty, or a hundred, or two hundred, or even two thousand. In fact, there are 5,883 verses that have this Olive Tob combination in them. That's kind of strange. What is this all about? I wanted to take you back just a step. I want you to notice something here. As I mentioned, the Olive Tob is a combination of the first letter and the last letter of the Hebrew alphabet. That's the original language that we're working with. It's the language behind the English that we're reading, okay? It's the first and the last, it's the beginning and the end the first and the last and the beginning and the end, that's kind of strange. That language sounds kind of familiar. If you agree with me and you say, that rings familiar to me, where have I heard that before? Turn to the very end of your Bible. The very end of your Bible, book of Revelation. In fact, not just the last book of the Bible, turn to the last chapter of the last book of the Bible. The last chapter of the last book of the Bible, chapter 22, Revelation chapter 22, verse 13. If you hear me, I'm talking fast. I'm getting excited, but I know we've got a lot of material. In this study today, we're going to be flipping to a lot of different places in our Bible. We're going to be moving fast. So here we go. Revelation chapter 22, verse 13, very famous verse. It says this, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Did you catch that? I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last, the beginning and the end and the first and the last. That kind of sounds like what we were talking about, the Olive and Tav. How coincidental is that? The Aleph and the Tav are made up of the beginning of the alphabet in Hebrew and the end of the alphabet in Hebrew. They're made up of the first and the last letters of the Hebrew alphabet. But what about the Alpha and Omega? What is that? The Alpha and the Omega? Well, let's talk about the language of the New Testament. The language behind the English in the New Testament, the New Covenant, is actually predominantly Greek and Aramaic thrown in there as well. Alpha and Omega are actually the first and the last letters of the Greek alphabet. The Greek alphabet starts with the letter alpha and works its way to the last letter of the Greek alphabet, that's omega. So when the person speaking Revelation chapter 22 verse 13 says, I am the alpha and the omega, in the language that's behind our English, going back to the Greek, when we see alpha and omega, it's the first and last letter of the Greek. It's the first and last letter of the Greek language. So who's speaking here? Well, some of you know the answer already, but in case you're not sure who it is that's speaking here, Verse 16 fills it in for us. Jesus. That's the speaker. The speaker in verse 13 identifies himself in verse 16 as Jesus. So here we have Jesus saying of himself, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Alpha and Omega, like I said, are the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet. However, did Jesus speak Greek? We're not really sure on that. Most of the manuscripts that we have surviving to this day are in Greek But there's strong evidence that he spoke Aramaic. Whether or not he spoke Greek, we're not sure, but he definitely spoke Aramaic. What would it sound like if Jesus was speaking in Aramaic? Well, Aramaic is a language that's very similar to Hebrew. It would have been the Aleph and the Tav. If John is writing down the words of Jesus, and if Jesus was speaking the language he most often spoke, and that was Aramaic, he wouldn't be saying, I'm the Alpha and the Mega. He'd be saying, I am the Aleph and the Tav. And John, being faithful to write that down, would have written it down, I am the Aleph and the Tav. It gets translated into the predominant language of the New Testament world, which is Greek, which ends up getting translated into the English that we're reading here today. So is it possible that Jesus is identifying himself as the aleph Tob? I am the Aleph and the Tav. I am the Alpha and the Mega. I am the Aleph and the Tav, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. So we have Jesus speaking in Revelation chapter 22, verse 13. He says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. But this is not the only place that this appears in the book of Revelation. In fact, we're at the last chapter of the book of Revelation. Let's work backward. Revelation, going back one chapter, chapter 21, verse 6, says this. Revelation 21, 6. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. There's that same language there. How about going back near the beginning of the book of Revelation? Revelation chapter 2, verse 8. These things says, the first and the last. There we see, again, some of the same language that we saw there in Revelation twenty two thirteen. 13. How about Revelation 117? I am the first and the last. How about Revelation 111? I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. And then finally, how about Revelation 1, 8? Now we're all the way at the beginning of the book of Revelation. Jesus speaking here, he says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. As if it wasn't provocative enough to say I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, he adds to that that he is the one who is and who was, that's interesting, and who is to come, something yet future. And then adds this astounding remark, the Almighty. Jesus identifying himself as the Almighty. Let that sink in for a little bit. Jesus identifying himself as the Almighty. Going back to Revelation chapter 22, verse 13, uh, the book that I'm going to be referring to here is the Messianic, Olive of Scriptures by William H. Sanford. William H. Sanford ends up saying regarding this exact verse right here and the other places in Revelation where Jesus identifies himself as the Alpha and the Omega, could John have been proclaiming that the Aleph and the Tav, the first and the last, was actually the olive tab symbol used in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, and consequently throughout the Tanakh? I personally believe that if you connect the dots of everything John states in his gospel and in the book of Revelation, the answer to this question is yes, with an exclamation point. And then he ends up saying this, what John was trying to reveal to those who had ears to hear is from the beginning, Yeshua, that's the Hebrew name for Jesus, from the beginning, Yeshua was with Elohim and was Elohim. And that Yod-Heh-Vav-Heh, or sometimes pronounced Yahweh, or Jehovah, was Elohim, and that Yod-Heh-Vav-Heh, or Yahweh, Father, by His Holy Spirit, worked together both with and through Yeshua as one. Let me read that again. What John was trying to reveal to those who had ears to hear is, from the beginning, Yeshua, or Jesus, was with Elohim, and was Elohim, and that Yahweh, Father, by His Holy Spirit, work together both with and through Yeshua as one. Did you catch what he's saying there? He's suggesting to us that the Aleph and Tav in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, where it says, In the beginning God, Aleph Tav, created the heavens and the earth. He's suggesting that that is actually Jesus. That somehow Jesus is right there in verse 1, being mentioned or being referenced to or being present In fact, William H. Sanford says that the Aleph Tav symbol is a marker for Yeshua, the Messiah's presence. A marker for the presence of Jesus. Now, in case you think, well, that guy's whacked. (laughs) Let me tell you about Rabbi Akiva. Rabbi Akiva lived almost 2,000 years ago. He was not a Christian, all right? So this is not a Christian slant. He is not trying to push a Christian agenda. But what does he say about the Aleph Tav? Rabbi Akiva, also known as the chief of the sages, all right, he says the olive is not a word, it's a mark, a sign, an amplification, a divine invitation, or the presence of the divine hand. The presence of the divine hand. In fact, William H. Sanford says that the olive is a marker for Yeshua, the Messiah's presence. That when we run across olive tav in Genesis chapter one verse one, it's an indication of the presence of Jesus there in that passage. You might think, okay, that's kind of far fetched. I mean, it is only one place that we have that we're looking at here, so really we don't need to be too concerned about it. We could get into all kinds of debates if it's only one passage, but it's not only one passage. There are five thousand eight hundred and eighty-three verses with this olive tav combination. This is significant. It's all over the place. How do you make 5,883 typos? You don't. These are put there intentionally. What is it supposed to signify? I think today's study is going to be kind of fun to look at what this might signify. So if we take Rabbi Akiva at his word, and he says this is the presence of the divine hand, if we take William Sanford at what he says, that this is a marker for Yeshua, a marker of Jesus being present in these places, and we've got the wording of John in the book of Revelation, where we've got the words of Jesus himself saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last, and the Alpha and the Omega in the Greek, if you were to translate that back into the Hebrew or the Aramaic of the day that he have been speaking, he identifies himself as the Olive Tab. Let's look. Is this actually going to be the case? Here's what I would say. William Sanford has an additional statement that he makes in the introduction to his Messianic Olive Top scriptures. He says, "Many believers are familiar with this symbol as representing Yeshua Messiah, but the simple truth of this matter cannot be completely analyzed until believers have the opportunity to read the Tanakh, that's Hebrew for the Old Testament." Opportunity to read the Tanakh for themselves and see where this symbol is actually placed. And so what I've done is I've got a few of these. Okay, maybe few is an understatement. Let's look at some of these. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. We see it in verse 1. In the beginning, God, Olive Tav, created the heavens and the earth, suggesting to us that Jesus was present there, that his fingerprints are on that passage, that he was there during the creation of the heavens and the earth. How about Genesis chapter 1, verses 3 and 4? It says this Then God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And God saw the light that it was good, and God divided the light from the darkness. There's an olive tov. Where is it? Here it is. Then God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And God saw of tov, the light. God saw Jesus, the light, that it was good. God saw Yeshua, the light, that it was good, and God divided the light from the darkness. Doesn't that make you appreciate it a little bit more and help you to see it in a different light? Isn't that kind of amazing? How about verse 7? Genesis chapter 1 verse 7. Thus God made the firmament and divided the waters which were under the firmament from the waters which were above the firmament. And it was so. Where's the olive Tov in that one? Thus God made aleph Tov the firmament and divided the waters. What does that suggest? It suggests he was there. He left a thumbprint behind. He left his fingerprints behind. He was there during the creation of the firmament. How about verse 16? Then God made two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night. He made the stars also. Where's all of top? It shows up twice there. God made all of top two great lights, the greater all of top light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night. He made the stars also. Thumbprints, fingerprints of God, of Jesus, Yeshua being present during the creation of these two great lights of the sun and the moon. The greater light to rule the day, the lesser light to rule the night, and he made the stars also. Jesus was there. How about Genesis chapter 1, verse 21? We're not even out of Genesis chapter 1 yet. Genesis chapter 1, verse 21. So God created great sea creatures and every living thing that moves. He was there as well. Where does it say that? So God created of Tav great sea creatures. God was there. Jesus was there. Yeshua was there. His fingerprints are there, showing that he was present during the creation of the great sea creatures and every living thing that moves, with which the waters abounded according to their kind, and every winged bird according to its kind, and God saw that it was good. He was there. How about chapter 2, verse 7? Chapter 2, verse 7 is the creation of man. It says, And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And man became a living being. Where does the olive tav appear in there? And the Lord God formed olive tav man of the. He was right there during the creation of man, right in the middle of it. Olive tav is there. Yeshua is there. Jesus is there. How about Genesis chapter three, verse eight? And they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. This is Adam and Eve before the fall, walking in the garden in the cool of the day with God. Jesus is there among them, and they heard olive tav. They heard Yeshua, the voice of the Lord God. Yeshua as the voice of the Lord God, or Jesus as the voice of the Lord God. Isn't that a different perspective on that verse? They heard Jesus, they heard Yeshua, the voice of the Lord God, walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Jesus as the voice of God. Think about reading the Gospels now with that passage and what that would carry into it then. Jesus has the voice of God. If you've already come to understand Jesus as your Messiah, as your, as your Savior, that's not hard to grasp. If you haven't, then consider it anew this way. He is the very voice of God. When Jesus speaks, you're hearing the voice of God. Next chapter, Genesis chapter 4, verse 1. Now Adam knew Eve his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, and said, I have acquired a man from Olaf Tav, the Lord. I have acquired a man. This is the first birth, and he's right there. He's present at the first birth. Genesis 15, 7, then he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldees. This is God speaking to Abraham, and this is beyond the call of Abraham, but this is now God appearing to Abraham and making the promise, the covenantal promise with him. Then he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldees to give you this land to inherit it. But we find there's an Olive Tav in an interesting place. I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldees to give you olive Tav. This land to inherit, as if God gave us Jesus, as if God gave Abraham Yeshua as a seal or as part of the promise of giving the land, that promise, that covenant that he made with Abraham in Genesis 15:7. How about Genesis 17:7? This is God meeting with Abraham again and restating the promise or reaffirming the promise. It says in 17:7, 7, and I will establish my covenant between me and and you and your descendants after you and their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and your descendants after you. And we find an Aleph Tav in this place. And I will establish Aleph Tav, my covenant, as if God's covenant is Yeshua, is Jesus. And I will establish Aleph Tav, my covenant, between me and you. As if not only is Jesus present as a witness Not only are his fingerprints there during this reaffirming of the covenant between God and Abraham, but maybe even suggesting that the covenant is Jesus, that the covenant is Yeshua. I will establish Aleph Tav, my covenant between me and you. I just think it's provocative. I think it's amazing. I think it's pretty astounding. Uh, Looking at another one, Genesis chapter 22, verse 13. Then Abraham lifted his eyes and looked, and there behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by its horns. Do you remember this story? This is where God called Abraham to sacrifice his son Isaac. He takes his beloved son to the mountains of Moriah to sacrifice him at the place of God's choosing. And just as he raises the knife into the air to plunge it into his son in obedience to the Lord, not understanding how is this going to work, but I understand I can trust God. He's got the knife in the air and he's stopped by God. And then what ends up happening? God says, now I know that you trust me. And God provides a ram. And this is that very place where God provides a ram. Then Abraham lifted his eyes and looked, and there behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by its horns. This is the ram that's going to be sacrificed in place of Isaac. And so what happens? Then Abraham lifted his eyes and looked, and there behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by its horns. So Abraham went and took Aleph Tav the ram. Jesus as the ram. Jesus as the sacrifice. Yeshua as the sacrifice in our place. So Abraham went and took Aleph-Tav the ram and offered it up for a burnt offering instead of his son. Goosebumps. i get goosebumps on some of these. Genesis chapter 25, verse 33 and 34. This passage is the one where Esau and Jacob. Esau is the firstborn. Jacob is the secondborn of the twins. And Esau forfeits his rights as the firstborn son for a bowl of stew. What do we see in verses 33 and 34? Then Jacob said, swear to me as this day. He's saying, make the promise. I'm offering you stew. You're offering me your birthright. He said, swear to me then. And then it says this. So he, that's Esau. So he swore to him, that's Jacob. So Esau swore to Jacob and sold his birthright to Jacob. He sold Aleph Tav. And Jacob gave Esau bread and stew of lentils. Then he ate and drank arose and went his way. Then Esau despised his Aleph Tav. Birthright. It almost sounds like not only is Jesus there as a witness to this detestable, self serving, poor decision on the part of Esau. I mean, Jacob was bad enough, but Esau could have said no. Not only was Olaf Tob, not only was Jesus Yeshua present during this, but it was as if Esau sold Jesus, sold Yeshua, sold everything that goes along with that, despised Olaf Tob, despised Yeshua, despised Jesus. When we see this passage in that light, it maybe helps lessen the blow of when we read in the New Testament where God is quoted as saying, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. That's strong language, really strong language, and it's really kind of a stumbling block to run across that passage, but maybe it helps a little bit to see here as if Esau sold all of Tav and despised all of Tav first. How about Genesis chapter 26, verse 4? Genesis chapter 26, verse 4. God appearing to Abraham and yet again reaffirming the promise, the covenant that he made with him. And in Genesis chapter 26, verse 4, it says this, And I will multiply your seed as the stars of the heaven. And we see from Paul's writings in the New Testament in Galatians that the seed refers to Christ. But here we have, if you read it, you find there's an olive tab there. I will multiply olive tab your seed as the stars of heaven. As if to suggest that Paul was right on. Paul knew exactly what he was describing. Inspired by the Holy Spirit. He knew that that seed was a reference to Christ. And here we have an Aleph Tav right there in the midst of it. We have Jesus, Yeshua, right there, followed immediately by the words, your seed. And I will give to your descendants Aleph Tav, all these lands. Without the Aleph Tav, we read in the English, what does it say? I will give to your descendants all these lands, and in your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. But it's kind of interesting to see that there's another Aleph Tav. And where is it? I will give to your descendants Aleph Tav. I will give to your descendants. Who is he talking to? Abraham. Who are the descendants? The Jews. The Jews are his biological descendants. His spiritual descendants are all those of faith, are all those followers of God. That would include you and I, if we're followers of God, that he would give to Abraham's descendants. His spiritual descendants would include me and you. Aleph, Tav, Jesus, Yeshua. Genesis 35.10, And God said to him, Your name is Jacob. This is the renaming of Jacob. God renaming Jacob. And God said to him, your name is Jacob. Your name shall not be called Jacob anymore, but Israel shall be your name. So he called aleph Tab, his name Israel. It looks like Jesus was there present when Jacob had his name changed by God to Israel. Genesis 37, 28, then Midianite traders passed by. So the brothers pulled, this is, if you remember this story, this is where Joseph's brothers threw him into a pit. They hated him. They despised him. Why did they hate him and despise him? Because he was the favorite son of the father he's one of 12 and the others they take him they throw him into this pit they don't know what to do with him they're thinking about murdering him and all of a sudden some traders on their way to Egypt come along and they think why don't we make some money off this kid and they take him out of the pit and they sell him and he gets hauled away to Egypt this is what they did to their brother who saw it dad didn't see it he wasn't there in fact when they went back and told dad the information that left him believing that his son had been killed somewhere by a wild animal it was clear dad wasn't there dad didn't see it but who did see it Aleph-Tav did. Genesis thirty seven twenty eight. Then Midianite traders passed by. So the brothers pulled Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. And they took Joseph to Egypt. Where's the Olive tav Well, there's not just one. There's not just two. There's actually three in this passage. Here's where they appear. Then Midianite traders passed by. So the brothers pulled Aleph-Tav, Joseph, as if Olive tav was right there with Joseph. As if Yeshua, or Jesus, was right there with Joseph when they pulled him out of that pit. And they sold Olaf him, to the Ishmaelites. As if God was right there when the brothers sold Joseph to these Ishmaelites. As if Jesus Yeshua was right there when that transaction happened. And they took Olaf tab Joseph to Egypt, as if Yeshua, as if Jesus was right there when they took Joseph to Egypt, as if God was with Joseph in the midst of the worst that he had ever been through in his entire life, and God was there with him. And we read in the English, and we don't see that. We need to be reminded that God is with us, and that sometimes we don't see it. How about Exodus chapter 3, verse 3? Exodus chapter 3 is famous. This is the Moses and the burning bush story. He's out in the middle of the desert, and God appears to him in the burning bush, Exodus chapter 3, verse 3, at the beginning part of that story, it says this, Then Moses said, he sees the burning bush. Then Moses said, I will now turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush does not burn. So he hasn't met with God yet, but he has seen that the bush is on fire. So he decides, I'm going to go see what this is all about. I'm going to go see this thing that's on fire. Uh, where's the olive tab Then Moses said, I will now turn aside and see olive tab I will now turn aside and see Jesus. I will now turn aside and see Yeshua. You know what? This fits with the wording of Jesus. Several times he ends up having discussions with the Pharisees. And he makes this statement where he says, before Abraham was, I am. He identifies himself as the one that's in the bush. Because how did the one in the bush describe himself? I am. And so when Jesus says, I am, he's identifying himself as the one in the bush. And here we have Exodus chapter 3, verse 3. Then Moses said, I will now turn aside and see Yeshua or Jesus. Yeah, it looks like he did. It looks like Jesus was there. It looks like his fingerprints are all over this. Well, it looks like that's all we're going to have time for today. Please join us in our next episode for the rest of this two-part study. And until then, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace.